Nathan, you sound infinitely better when you sing with your wife. <laughs> Wasn't that great? Thank y'all very much. Well, how is everyone today? Blessed. That's a good answer. I like that one. We're still a little bit scarce, but hopefully after school starts this coming week, everybody will find Lori. I'd always love watching summer because we have a good turnout. It's just not the same people every week. Let us pray together, please. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you that you have given us this opportunity to come into your house. Lord, we are so thankful for the words that you have given us in these scriptures. Lord, I pray for us now. I pray as we enter this time of preaching that your words will be felt in all those that are present. That your guiding message will go forth so that we may hear and that we may see your plan unfold in front of our eyes. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us that we have ears to listen, hearts to be faithful, and hands to be strong in your work. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we've gone through the New Testament, can you believe we're already into 2 Timothy? This seems like we're almost done. My Bible's getting a lot thinner here toward, towards the end. We've, we've made good progress this year. And if some of you, you might just be happy that we're almost done with Paul. Because we're, we're going to be done with him pretty much after this coming week. And so 2 Timothy is an interesting book. It's, it's kind of a farewell address. And so we're not really sure how much time has um, elipsed or, or, or gone from the writing of 1 Timothy to 2 Timothy. It could have been a fairly short amount of time. It could have been a long time. Uh, we're not really sure from the clues that we've been given in this letter if this is uh, Paul's kind of final stand there in Rome, but we know he's in prison that he has suffered greatly for the gospel. Not only has he suffered from uh, those outside the faith, but his heart has been broken with, by fellow workers of the, in the church or in the mission that he had. They had abandoned him there in his change. They were embarrassed of his change. They, they began to believe that because of all these times Paul was thrown into jail, that there was something wrong with Paul. And they became a little suspicious of him. Not only that, but Paul was also still dealing with those who would corrupt the gospel and either add to or take things away. Uh, but he remembers Timothy. So in this letter, he writes to his, his uh, not servant, but really more like a son, Timothy. And he calls him, one, to ask him to, to bring him a few things and to gather up a few people, but to kind of give him that final charge so this is kind of like Paul's uh, deathbed farewell, if you want to be grim about it, because Paul doesn't know at this point if he's going to be released, but he knows he wants to at least take the time while he has it to, to give a last bit of advice or encouragement to, to one that was so dear to him. And so that's what this letter's about. Uh, you know, as you read through this book, you probably noticed or heard, if you listen to Caleb, that a ton of these scriptures are now currently in song form on the radio. If you listen to Christian music much, you will hear these, these scriptures over and over again in the songs that we sing. 
That's how powerful this one little letter is. It is short. It is basically uh, four chapters long, and part of it is greetings and prayers. So when you take the, the meat of it, you're just a couple pages here that we're dealing with. But in the beginning of this letter, Paul lifts up those who have been important to Timothy in his life. He lifts up two women that have meant a lot to this young man, young man as he grew in the faith, both his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. He lifts him up to point to Timothy when he is anticipating that Timothy will have to go about ministry without him in the near future. He lifts up those, and he also lifts up the time that they spent together and the witnesses that he saw because Timothy had been prepared. He had been prepared for this. You know, sometimes when we look for volunteers for church positions, and, and I hate to tell you, but that's this time of year because we're starting to go through and, and figure out who can still do, who needs to step down, or who wants a break, a sabbatical, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but as you look for volunteers, you know, some of the excuses you get is, oh, I, I'm just not able to do that. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a this. I, I, I'm not ready. But Paul tells Timothy here, you have been prepared from the time you could walk till now. From the time you were little, people prayed over you. They watched you grow. They taught you in the faith. And your faith, he says, at least is as strong as these women. They guided you in the right direction. And he goes over and over again, and, and he gives them examples. And we'll get to later in the scripture. But, you know, if, if Christians today, if, if we, we may have legitimate answers to the volunteer question. Well, I'm just not, I just don't know my Bible well enough that I could lead a Sunday school class. You're probably right. But should that stop you? No, that should make you think, what do I value most in life? And so many of us have graduated high school, went on to college. Some of us have gone to professional degrees beyond that. And some of us haven't. But if we found a career, I guess what? I bet you there's been some kind of training involved. Whether you followed an uh, experienced person and you learned from hands-on experiences and you developed these kind of things, there was this kind of training involved in your livelihood. There was also, uh, for many of us, we have conferences we go to or committees that we sit on that, that we have speakers come on that would some part give us encouragement, some part tell us about the ongoings of the industry to, to spur us on. Now, if you deal with numbers or banks, there's all kind of things that you read because we're in a global economy. What happens in China affects us. What happens in India or, or uh, the European Union, all that affects how the dollars work. And so if you're investing and playing with it, you've got to follow all these trends. And we will spend countless hours studying and preparing and, and learning from trial and error and all these things about our personal livelihood. But we're finite. When we start talking about theology, I can guarantee you everyone will get this answer right. If Christ doesn't return today or in the next 50, let's say 100 years, how many of you, if Christ doesn't return in 100 years from now, you will be living? I don't see any hands up. We have a set number of days. Some of us will break that triple digit mark, but the majority of us will not. 
And we spend our days toiling away about how to make money, how to earn livings, and all these kind of things. And even other things like sports. We learn statistics and we learn all these kind of things. Other hobbies, mechanics, those are where I'll spend. I'll spend hours watching YouTube things on, on putting together a, a table or how to build an electric car. Like, I'm never going to build an electric car. Do you know how far those things go? I'd be stuck somewhere between here and Lubbock when my go-kart ran out of juice. But I'm fascinated with those things. But we say that Christ is absolutely the most important thing in our life. But yet we haven't spent a tenth of that amount of time studying His Word, learning from others. And what's worse is not only have we not prepared ourselves, but we haven't prepared the next generation. As you will see through this letter, if you read closely, there are those that Paul had influenced through the gospel that had influenced Timothy through the gospel. But there was something important. They handed off the baton. They not only handed off the baton, but they stayed with them. They, they helped them grow so that they would have that baton firmly grasp so that it would not fall. You know, there's a saying that it only takes one generation to fail to pass the baton of the Christian faith for the Christian faith to disappear. That is true in a sense. But here's the dangerous part that we need to consider. Over and over again in this letter, we see that there are early heresies already starting to form around the gospel, where whether the understanding of the resurrection or, or whatever you have it form. And Paul was always correcting them through the witnesses that he gave, through how he lived his life, through the witnesses of the other apostles and these kind of things, and through the scriptures that pointed to Jesus. He was contending with them. But today I think the most evil heresy is the heresy of the Christian nation. We have a cultural Christianity. And bear with me for a minute. What a cultural Christianity is means we like the tenets of the Bible when they suit us. We like the moralism of the Bible when it suits us because a Christian nation is a moral nation. A moral nation is a one built on laws that we can enforce and it keeps everybody happy because nobody can do bad things to us. There's no this freedom to do whatever you want. There are limits in everything that we do in a Christian nation. But a Christian nation, even though it teaches all the principles that are found in this book on how to live a better life, as far as how to have business dealings with others. You know, it's not popular to cheat in business. Many people do it. But it is, it is unethical to lie in business practices when you enter into contracts. Because guess what? If you've falsely entered into a contract with somebody and it is found out, that contract is void. And you're going to be sued and all this kind of stuff. You may end up in jail. You can find some of these principles here in this book. But a cultural Christianity, one built on the morals of Christian values, does not save. It never has. And it never will. It is only by the blood of the Lamb that we are redeemed. It is only by the blood of the Lamb that we have been set free so that we may live truly what we were created to be. And that is in an intimate relationship with the Father. 
It is a relationship that was lost when sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden. It was a relationship that was restored when the advocate, when Jesus Christ came, incarnate on this earth. That's the gospel. Jesus restored what was once lost, and he brings us all in. It's not about living a perfect moral life, but that's a part of it. It's about finally living in a righteous state in front of a righteous God, a holy God. This is what we were created for. And so as Paul writes this to Timothy, he reminds Timothy, even though that he has suffered, even though those have abandoned him, in chapter 1 it tells us this, he says, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He is able to guard until the day that he is called home. Until the day he crossed that finish line, Christ lived in him and gave him power and strength. That is why he is able. You know, it says, God gave us the Spirit. It's not a fear. He didn't give us a spirit to, to hide from this world, to back off, to live in our own little cocoon of safety. He gave us one of power and love. And we want to skip this part, self-control. There is disciplines in the faith. You know, I think sometimes we miss that with our evangelical emphasis as Baptists is we want to preach Christ crucified and all you have to do is accept this free gift and come forward and you're done. You're not done when you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. You are redeemed. And when you are redeemed, you are called to be a good soldier, to be a good worker for Christ. One that can live in this world not of this world, one who can point others to the gospel so that all may be saved. But we are called to be redeemed, to be his workers, to be his fellow servants. And so Paul was writing to Timothy to remind him of these things. In chapter 2 it tells us this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to the faithful people who will be able to teach others, sharing and suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Timothy was not only instructed to carry the gospel, to build churches, but also to set up leaders and teachers into this place that he was sent, so that all may strive for the gospel, for the soldier to be obedient, for the hardworking farmer to share in some of the produce. It wasn't for others that he worked, but it first was for them. He goes on in verse 14, he says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearer. 
Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I love this ver- these two verses here. When I was in seminary, I studied a lot of theology and church history. And I came to an understanding that learning theology is good, it is beneficial, but many of the church conflicts have been over vocabulary. I'm not joking, they're over vocabulary. It is people will, will almost assume that you're unorthodox or, or you're uh, uh, following some kind of heretical views when you don't have the same understanding, same definition that they use on understanding the scriptures or who God is, what Christ has done. But when you back up, when you have the advantage of hindsight and you can look at both sides of the argument... Let's take Scripture, for example. It is something Baptists still fight over. Is What is the definition of Scripture? Do we use the word inerrancy or an infallibility? Do you all know the difference between the two? So, if you want to use inerrancy as your definition, you may say every word in the Bible is true. It is good for teaching, good for that. If you use the word infallible, you can repeat what I just said. But really what we're saying is, how do we read the Bible? Do we read it literal? Does every word have to be literal? Does everything have to be perfect because God gave us this perfect treasure? For some, that's what they think it means. That means you have to read everything literally. I had a friend that would joke that says, well, honestly, you can't read the whole Bible literally or you think God's a big chicken because he takes them under his wing. And you're like, well, that's poetry is what it was using in the Psalms when it talks about that. So let's back up. Our Bible is full of many genres. There's history, there's prophecies, there's letters, and a lot of in-between. There's ancient text. Well, even the New Testament is ancient, but there's more ancient than the New Testament. All different kind of literature that makes it up. There's eyewitness testimonies. There's some of intimate natures, kind of like this letter to Timothy. But we can't read every bit of the Bible the same, can we? No, we can't. And so what some people do is they want to have this definition of the Scriptures so that they can feel good about themselves, that they lift the Scriptures up. Well, we are Baptists, we are people of the book, and we should lift the Scriptures up. But the Scriptures weren't ever used to be a hammer. They weren't ever there to attack us. They were there to redeem us, to point us to how God intervened in history and show us how to live in our present life. They should be lifted up, but we shouldn't use them to attack each other. Not because we don't understand the exact same thing about Scripture. You know, maybe it's just the background that I have. My undergrad was in construction engineering technology with a minor in architecture. Part of my classes, I know this sounds fascinating, we're learning how to read uh, specs and blueprints and these kind of things. They're, they're really dry if you don't like that at all. It's kind of like going through and, and reading case law. I'm sure most people have no interest in that, but for you, it's very much important. 
But I learned to read and study in layers. Everything builds upon each other. You can have a stack of blueprints about this thick. And guess what they become? They become buildings this tall. Look up, look around you. If you know what you're looking at in the blueprints and the drawings and the details, you can build this place anywhere that it'll fit. If you still have them. We've got partial blueprints still in my office. I love kind of going through them. They don't have the parts I really want, like where the electrical wires ran and things like that. Those kind of turned up missing. But I could build basically this structure again based on what I have. Of course, building practices have changed a bit since this was first building. Some materials are no longer available. And some of the materials they shouldn't have used back then, but they didn't know any better. That's why you get into places that the walls are falling down because of what they thought was the best, new and latest and greatest way to, to build. And factor in the humidity of the south or the dryness of the, the Texas plain. But in a thin stack of papers you build upon. We have the scripture, it's just a stack of papers, but it builds life. Everything is connected from the beginning of the end. Everything is connected in this book. If you take one little piece out of context, you can build a theology based on it if you ignore the rest. You could do damage with one little piece of Scripture. And it sounds logical. It sounds reasonable. It sounds God-inspired when you're only looking at a sliver of text. But don't do that. You have to have the concept of all of the scripture from the beginning to the end because we know that as we read these scriptures together, there was a plan. There was God's sovereignty involved on how we got them. Do y'all know how we got this Bible? Do y'all know that it took thousands of years to get here today? It went through the original writers, how they were inspired. But did you know some of the oldest texts, they were oral tradition? They carried on by word of mouth. They were in a, a culture that didn't write things down because they didn't have the technology yet. Did you know we could have lost these texts when Israel was sent into exile? But we didn't. In exile, God slowed down Israel so that they could find who they truly were. They were also a people of the book like us. And they compiled their scrolls and, they, and they, they put them together and they made sure they had everything. Priests from all over the place would get together. Well, what did you make out with? And they would put them together. And now we have our Old Testament scriptures. Not only did that, but as the New Testament was written, people saw in these inspired words. Because I always wondered, did Paul know this was going to be scripture when he wrote it? Or did the others have to see God's handiwork in those letters? But people saw in these texts something that maybe even the original writer did not. And they collected them and they put together and then they copied them and circulated them around. And so it's fascinating if you ever study how the scriptures come to be. And how translators go and they use the work and all these kind of things. Because it is a process. If you only found your theology of scripture on those original uh, manuscripts well guess what they don't exist I am more fascinated the more I learn how we got the pages that sit here on this pulpit today because of everything they had to do to survive 
They had to come by word of mouth for, for generations. Then they were compiled into collections. And they went into the exile where they should have been lost, but they didn't. And they survived. They went through those quiet years when the Hellenists came in and invaded the Judaism and, and corrupted it with paganism and all these kind of things. And, and when Jesus came, the eyewitnesses started recording. They should not have even made the Gospels. But they survived. But they also went through some dirty periods of church history. They went through some of the darkest periods of the church to where even the people no longer could read the language and it was set up to a special class of people, these priests, who some of the priests could not even read in their own native language the Bible, the scriptures. And they recited from memory not knowing exactly what they were saying to perform their rituals and things like this. The Bible made it through some of the darkest times of church history, of human history, because God's sovereign hand was a part of it. From Adam and Eve to Mark and Natalie, that Bible made it through. It gave us to encourage us, to strengthen us, to grow with us so that we may use it and this Bible isn't delicate. If it could make it through that, go ahead, dissect it, tear it apart, dig into it. Use whatever manner of intellect you can to dig into these words. Because God will help you put them back together. Don't just listen to the smartest person that you know. Listen to the cloud of witnesses. If you're going to tear this scripture apart, listen to how it was read over the centuries. Go back to those early church fathers who read the words of Paul and who set up the church the way that they saw to be set up. Listen to those who came before the Enlightenment and scientific revolution who had this idea of spirituality that is far removed from what we have today. Listen to their voices because they were also inspired. They were also called. But also listen to the voice of the Spirit. Bathe this book in prayer before you proceed. Because it is the Spirit who gives us its meaning today. It is the Spirit who calls us and guides us. It is the Spirit who we find Christ in these works. The beginning of chapter 3 paints a dark picture of the world. Go back and read it if you have not paints a world that's very familiar to us today. But in verse 10, it tells us this, You, however, have followed my teachings, referring to Timothy, my conduct and my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and my suffering that have happened to me in Antioch and Iconia and Listeria. That's not right, but close enough. With persecution, I endured... Yet from them all, the Lord rescue you. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul tells these words to Thim Timothy. He says, but as for you, as for you, this is written to us today, as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, 
He says, follow my example. Follow your mother's example. Follow your grandmother's example. These are who you have learned this message. They have prepared you well. Not every one of us have that background. But every one of us can live in the life of others who have been called by the name of Christ. To teach the next generation how to live. But not just the next generation. The generation who is actively involved in ministry. There are some today who can't do what they used to do. But you can still offer your experience, your guidance, your faith to those who are involved today. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. You have a good teacher. If not, look for one. If you've got experience in the faith, look for somebody to teach, to guide. Hopefully from childhood onward. But this is what it says in the last two verses. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In this one chapter alone, we find that the world is an evil place. Very much like today. We find that God's sovereignty and plan has been revealed through the scriptures and from the life of the faithful whom you have heard it. We're given role models of the faith. Whether or not in our house, in the church, if not in the church, then in the history books of faithful people over the years, over the martyrs who paid for their faith with their very blood. But if not that, we have been given the scriptures. For in them hold all the witnesses that we need to know. They hold where we have failed. Because if you've ever read this Bible closely, those heroes of the faith, those that we teach about in children's Sunday school class, that we paint all the rosy pictures of how great they were for the faith, just how utterly failures they were as humans, how King David, the line of the, uh, Jesus Christ, committed adultery, covered it up with murder, how Gideon, that one that we talk about, and what they did in the book of Judges, he's not a great character. Samson. Everybody wanted to be Samson because of his strength. Do you remember those lessons as a kid when you had the felt board up and you put all the little things up there? I mean, ripping a lion apart with your bare hands, that's incredible. A womanizer. What would his life been like if he pursued holiness and righteousness? In the end of this book, Paul starts citing other people and instructions to Timothy. He says, you know, go get Luke, bring him along. Also get Mark, bring him along, for he's very useful for me in ministry. Do you know who this Mark is? Go back and read Acts chapters 12 through 15. Mark, in his early days of ministry, was an eager young guy. In relation to Barnabas, co-worker of Paul. But things out on the trail got a little bit tough for, for Mark. He left him. Paul was bitter about that. Him and Barnabas parted ways for a while. 
He screwed up. His example of a second start. The example of failure turned right. We don't always make the best decisions in life. We don't always do things perfect. We may have been called to the gospel, to a ministry, or to whatever it is, and we are very ambitious to start. But even in the words of Jesus that night, his disciples failed him when they called to pray and to keep watch with them. He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We have to train our flesh to listen to the spirit. We may be redeemed, but we still live in a corrupt world where if we overdo it in the gym, our bodies are sore the next day. Or if you like me and you avoid all that, then your body's sore for completely different reasons. We don't always get it right. But one thing in life that I've learned, God's economy is perfect. He uses your successes and your failures for the advancement of his work on earth. If you remain faithful, he is faithful to you. If you claim his name, he claims yours. If you completely burn out and are no longer faithful to God, he is still faithful. Paul says. But he wants each and every one of you to take part. He wants every one of us who may have failed in the past to be like this Mark that has a second win and this second time around gets it right. For Paul lifted up his name and said, He is very useful to me in ministry. A time where he wanted in the past to have nothing to do with him. So please join with me in a word of prayer. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scripture, the word that you have breathed. We are thankful for your message and the witnesses that you have given us, both in the past and the present. Lord, teach us to be your faithful servant. Teach us to look at those that we have followed, that we considered faithful servants of yours. That we know that these servants aren't always faithful and perfect they don't always get it right but they keep at it over and over again and through their failures you teach them you mold them into the people that you have created them for like Peter the rock who on the night betrayed your name to the request of a little girl around the fire Not only betrayed your name but cursed heaven because of you you lifted him up. You brought him into your arms and you loved him. And he became such a strong follower that even the church was built on his witness. Lord, we may have not have always gotten it right, but you've always been there for us. Teach us when we are wrong. Guide us when we are lost. Correct us when we stray. But above all, Lord, teach us that you love us unconditionally. That you died for us while we were still enemies. And if you would die for an enemy, how much would more would you die for a friend? Let your love flow and fill our hearts with your warmth. 
It's in your name we pray. Amen. And at this time, as we enter our invitation, if Jesus Christ has laid a burden on you, to let him put, be put first in your life, and you need to pray, please come forward. If you want to surrender your life to his calling, please come forward. Or if you're simply in need of prayer, please come forward at this time.